Well, hey, welcome to Regeneration. My name is Kyle. I'm the pastor here, and I'm just super, super thrilled to have you with us in just about every way there is. The reason I'm kind of looking around the room is because I, once upon a time, had a Bible, and I don't know where that is, so we're just going to kind of keep working. Um, Oh, I found it back there. We'll just use this one. Uh, Hey, so welcome to Regeneration. My name's Kyle. Like I said, I'm the pastor here. I now have a Bible, so you know that's true. Just want to draw your attention just to a couple things as we kick off tonight. Um, Inside your program that you're seeing on your way in is a report card. If you have not filled out a report card yet this report card season, we need to know how we're doing. Um, We've gotten some great feedback from this on some ways that we can do things better and also just some really great encouragement about the role our community is playing in people's lives. And so please fill that out. Give me a grade. If you give me a D, I will find you and explain to you why I didn't deserve that. But for now, uh, just fill that out. Also, if you happen to be a first or second time guest with us tonight, we're so, so glad you're here. We really, really are. If you wouldn't mind filling uh, out a connection card and dropping it in the offering basket uh, during our uh, response time, that'd be fabulous. And don't forget to pick up a mug on your way out. For the last uh, now 10 weeks, this is week 10, so I guess the nine weeks leading into this one, we've been studying the book of Ephesians, which is... Uh, one of Paul's uh, most focused letters in terms of the nature and uh, existence of the church. We're in Ephesians chapter 6 tonight, and I'm going to pray for us. We're in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, and as I pray, I just want to invite you, ask you to pray with me and for me um, as we preach, as we work through the Word together, given the nature of the material before us. Let's Let me just read this to you, and then we'll pray. Paul says a final word. Be strong in the Lord. This is chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be able, you will still be standing firm. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would send your presence here in a particular way. In fact, we don't need to ask you to send it. It's here, and so we acknowledge it and place ourselves under your authority tonight as we hear from your word. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would walk guard duty around us in this place at this time in perhaps a unique way so that we could hear the words of your mouth for us even tonight. Um, Father, we know that in singing and in praying and proclaiming the gospel of of your Son, we are waging war against a force that would rather us not. And so we pray that we would be vigilant in that regard even tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Why do we like to be afraid? With Halloween upon us, it seems like every store, every front yard is getting scarier and scarier. Although nothing tops this house that's right by the mall. Uh, It's just before you get to the plaza with the Starbucks in it, it's on your right, and they have what is literally my worst nightmare, life-sized clowns, but not happy clowns that want to tie a balloon animal for you, scary clowns that like want to tie your body into knots and murder you. 
In 2014, Americans spent a whopping $7 billion on Halloween, which really isn't a large number when you compare it to the amount of money that we spend on other holidays. We spend twice that on Mother's Day and Father's Day, but $7 billion is really an unprecedented number, and about $2.5 billion of that is spent on Halloween decorations. When, when I was growing up, Halloween decorations were a bale of hay and some corn stalks on the front porch with like a cute scarecrow, and now it's scary, murderous clowns and things that spring up and scream at you and, and, and scare you. And a quick search of horror movies available at Redbox includes uh, titles like Demon Baby, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, Dark Moon Rising, The Invoking, Nocturna, and The Ouija Exorcism. By category alone, um, horror movies outnumber the other movies in a Redbox about two to one, and most of them are made with less than 10% of the budget. Why do we like to be afraid? Why do we like being scared? What do we like about adrenaline coursing through us? What do we love about the feeling of a scream escaping us? Why do we like to be afraid? I can't help but wonder. I can't help but imagine that we like to be afraid because somewhere deep in our subconscious, buried in the primordial ooze of our own souls, we know that we ought to be afraid. We know that evil is real, that evil exists, that it has an agenda, that evil is more comprehensive than a political party, an ideology, another religion. What if we're, we like to be scared because we know that we should be, because we know that we're at war? We've been in this study of the book of Ephesians, and Paul has written really rather beautifully about concepts about how the living church has been given a new identity, that the living church is united in a real and radical way, that the living church speaks the truth in love, that its relationships, marriages, and, our, and parenting relationships, and our, even the way we handle our work, that all of these reflect the gospel. And yet, as Paul gets to the end of the letter, he ends on an interesting tone by telling us that to be the living church is to be a church at war. And throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul has been drip, drip, dripping these uh, ideas of an enemy. They'll be on the screen behind me. In Ephesians 1, Paul talks about how that Jesus is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader in everything and anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. In Ephesians 2, he's very clear that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we lived just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. In Ephesians 3, Paul says that God's purpose in all of this in saving us and bringing us to himself was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Throughout the letter, Paul is pointing us to the reality of unseen rulers and authority in the heavenly places and then points us to the real enemy in chapter 6 verses 10 through 13 saying that we are not fighting flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the, in the heavenly places he says that we ought to put on every piece of God's armor so we'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil 
We want, as 21st century Christians, to be able to write all of this off. We want to take Paul's words about an unseen spiritual realm and assume that they come from a more superstitious time. We want to assume that the teachings of Jesus, of casting out demons, of performing miraculous things for those who were possessed and oppressed by demons weren't really demonic activity as much as they were evidence of psychological dysfunction, psychosis. We want to explain away these ideas medically and technologically and psychologically, but then this sentence from uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet haunts us. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. We want to believe that we're over it, that we've achieved modern success, and yet over and over and over again, Scripture points us to the reality that there is a world that we cannot see that is equally, if not more real, that is constantly intersecting with our own. In the book of Genesis, Jacob has a vision of angels ascending and descending a ladder from heaven and to earth, demonstrating to him that heaven is constantly all up in our business, for lack of a better world. And Daniel, in the book of Daniel, the angel Gabriel, who's one of only two named angels in all of the scripture, Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, I would have gotten here sooner, but for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Jesus was led in the New Testament into the desert for 40 days, and while he was there, Satan tempted him. Jude 9 tells us that the angel Michael and Satan himself disputed over the body of Moses. We want to be people that cling to God's goodness, that celebrate God's goodness, that celebrate his strength and his victory. But the truth of the matter is, is that we can't do one without the other. We can't lay claim to a God who is loving and gracious and kind and frankly wrathful and powerful without also acknowledging that there's another character in the story a character who is evil, personified. This, by the way, is why horror movies are perhaps the most biblical movie genre that there ever was, because horror movies tell us that evil is real, and it has a will exercised by real actors. Before we dive in, here's what I want to accomplish today. I want to give you a brief overview of what the Bible has to say about demons. I want to look specifically at what Paul is teaching us in Ephesians 6, and then I want to close with a few so what's. It should only take about an hour and a half. (laughs) But before we do, I want to uh, end with, I want to start with this quote from um, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters. It'll be on the screen. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. For most of my life, I fell into the first category, to disbelieve in their existence. I felt like we were beyond this, and I felt, frankly, that my theological framework could do without demonic influence. Thank you very much, and yet over the last year, of planting this community, of engaging in front lines work where there it, we are reaching real people that have very little exposure to the gospel, things have happened. Un- unnecessary seasons of discouragement, deep times of sorrow, conflict. And so I've moved closer and closer to the second category, not an unhealthy and excessive interest in what is demonic, but in 
humble, if maybe forced awakening to the reality that this is what is happening. And so I want us to talk about what Scripture has to say. First, Scripture teaches that Satan was once an angel of great responsibility and beauty, but rebelled against God. When God created the angels in eternity past, he did not create them all equal. Some were more beautiful or more wise or more skilled than others. And one in particular got it into his head that he should not just be beneath God or even equal with God, but above God. Isaiah 14 records uh, what it says. It says in Isaiah 14, 12, part of it will be on the screen. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You've been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of God's far away in the north. Verse 14, I, this is Satan talking, will climb to the highest heavens. I'll be like the most high. The scriptures indicate that Lucifer, Satan, the enemy, called son of the morning in this text, when he rebelled, he took a third of the angelic host with him, and that together they were cast down into the earthly realms. And for that reason, Satan and his demons have been given limited but effective authority in the earthly realm. Paul speaks of these ideas of authorities and principalities and rulers, which may also indicate kind of a governing scheme of demonic forces, but they've been given limited authority in the world, the same limited authority a dog has when trapped behind one of those invisible fences. My uncle was a, has been a poster carrier for most of his career and has had his fair share of dogs running right at him only to be stopped at the last second by that indivisible, invisible fence and a jolt in the collar. You step inside that invisible fence and the dog has plenty of authority. But in the full realm of things, he has been given, Satan has been given limited authority to affect the world in tangible ways. In Job uh, chapter 1, the text talks about Job entering into the heavenly realm, into the throne room of God to ask God for permission to mess with Job. He is given effective authority. It it does things to Job. It ruins his life, ultimately for the good, if you can say such a thing. But he has to ask God first. Satan seeks to hinder God's work by opposing... uh, Go to this next one for me, Dylan. Satan seeks to hinder God's purposes by opposing God's people. God God loves regeneration, And so Satan hates it. Satan would love nothing more than for us to be bitter, angry, judgmental, and disinterested in the gospel. That is the number one way that Satan opposes God's purposes in the world. As God seeks to advance his kingdom in the world through local churches, Satan's number one tactic is to oppose God's people. Jesus says in John 10, uh, uh, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. A rich and satisfying life is what this says. The reality is that Satan seeks to oppose God's purposes. We like to think that spiritual opposition in this way, spiritual warfare is the words used by Christian. We like to think that this is not for us, that this exists in some far off corner of the world where missionaries and people dealing with those kinds of people that are poor and don't know better 
That's where they experience spiritual warfare. But can I tell you what the problem with living in America is, is that we think we're beyond that, which has given the enemy total reign to fly under the radar all of the time. We are at war. And in this war, Satan has three tools in his arsenal, only three. That don't mean they're not effective. His first tool is accusation. In Revelation 12, there's this interesting text. It says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan loves to accuse you. Let me put it a different way. He loves to make you feel ashamed. He loves nothing more than to haunt you with your past, with your bad decisions. It is his desire that you be weighed down with an overwhelming feeling of your own ugliness. That is not God's heart for you. God's heart for us is to cover our shame, to take it away, to remove it from us. Satan also loves to lie. He loves to deceive. There's this really interesting text in John 8. He, Jesus says, you are, the fa- you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Kyle talks loud. It's just who he is. I can't not do that. Satan can't not lie. It is impossible for him to tell the truth. Because at his very core of his very character is to lie. And he loves to get us believing lies about ourselves, about our abilities, about our future, about a relationship that we have. He loves to deceive us. And that's how it all began. That was the problem. Genesis 3, go back and look at the text. He lies to Eve. Did God really say? He doesn't have to tell you carte blanche that the blue pen you're looking at is red, like in Liar, Liar. He just has to be ever so subtle. Did God really say? And of course, his last tool is temptation trying to yank us off the way of Jesus. There's this really interesting verse that I've been thinking a lot about this week in 1 Thessalonians. Paul planted a church in a town called Thessalonica, much, very much like the church he planted in Ephesus, and he doesn't hear from them for a time. He loses track, and so he sends somebody to go check on them. He says, that's why when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that our work had been useless. Just a little bit more. Just one more look, just one more click, just one more drink, just one more lie. Get, embellish that, that gossip story just a tiny, tiny, give it a little bit more flair. And here's the irony of how Satan does this. He lies to us and tells us that sin is going to be the best way to go. And then he tempts us by making sin look really, really good. And then we sin, so he wins. And then he gets to, it's, he, Satan loves to not just win-win. He loves to win-win-win, in the words of Michael Scott. Because then once we step into sin, nobody is quicker to guilt. Nobody is quicker to shame than Satan. I can't believe you. You say that you love God and you, you claim the name of Jesus and you did what? 
when speaking of these things, you get into a darker place for sure. When I was preaching this message this morning, we were kind of getting to an intense place, and my mic like screeched, and like I watched a hundred people like, you know, and uh, so hopefully that doesn't happen here. The funny thing is, is when we see things that we are afraid of, we have been built biologically to have what's called a fight or flight response. We're built to run away. And yet the funny thing about what Scripture teaches, what even Paul says here in Ephesians 6 is, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor, verse 11, so that you will be able to stand firm. We're supposed to flee temptation. We're supposed to run away from those things. But when faced with the devil, we're supposed to stand. We're supposed to stand in one place and say no. And this is why I think in a great John verse, if you ever want to memorize one, is 1 John 4, 4. He's, John writes, but you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. In Kyle's mind, this is greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Greater is he, when you step across the line of faith, Christ brings the full weight of his office and indwells you. Paul calls in Ephesians 2 as the signing and sealing of the Spirit, or Ephesians 1, the signing and sealing of the Spirit. And when he does that, Christ indwells you victoriously so that when you face the devil, when the living church is at war and looks the enemy in the face, they're not facing him directly. There's somebody standing in front of him. That Jesus stands between me and the enemy when I, fa- when I face these things. And that's why I'm called to stand. This is why when we are accused, we deny shame. Because the one who has in, is in us has pulled our shame away from us. He has covered it. He has removed us and called us blessed and chosen and loved. This goes back to Ephesians 1. This is why Paul had to spend so much time setting up our identity, because that's the very root at which Satan goes. But he says, no, you're adopted, you are blessed, you are chosen, you are part of the family, you are known, you are loved lavishly. When we are accused, we deny the shame. When we are lied to, we seek the truth. We ask other people if I'm starting to talk the crazy talk. I mean, the number of times that my wife and I have looked at each other and said, am I being crazy? When tempted, we look for escape. Paul says in Corinthians that no temptation has seized you, yet which is common to man. Therefore, God always provides. He is faithful to provide a way out. He is always faithful when we are tempted to do blank, to give us a road out. There's always a door. There's always a window. There's always an escape hatch. There's always an eject button. It does come to us to choose it. Paul calls us to stand, which means we don't step back, but that also means we don't step forward. We can be prone to encounter things that are not of this world and lean in out of curiosity. To want to know a little bit more in the foundational teaching of the Old and New Testaments, the full weight of the gospel is don't mess with that. Everything that comes from the enemy has the label that your hot McDonald's coffee has on it for reasons I can't fathom. Hot, do not touch. And so 
And, and, and they're disguised in cutesy ways. They're disguised in ways that seem normal. The, the, the scriptures say that Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. I mean, darkness is just where we are. I mean, it's like Halloween, which means like every 13-year-old girl is going to go play Ouija board. Like, find me a person that has not had a demonic encounter through this, like, thing that's packaged next to Monopoly and Target. And so then we run to, oh, I'm a Gemini, and it says that because the sun is far away from the moon and Jupiter is at its I don't know what, that I'm going to fall in love this week. I mean, that's leaning into something that may look innocent on the front, but has something deeper behind it. I mean, you find somebody on TV and they're like, oh, I can talk to dead people. Okay, let's not do that. I mean, we end up all of a sudden, this is what the enemy does, is he packages it as this cutesy little thing. I think actually a few years ago, McDonald's like included a Ouija board thingy and like the box was the Ouija board. I mean, it looks like cute. And I, and you start to, I start to sound insane. Like you now go to the church where the guy just said, don't play with Ouija boards. Like, cause that's the brand we're trying to shoot for at Regen. But, but, but we're not called to lean in even out of curiosity. We're not called to mess with that. I mean, there's been times, I'm, I really love the show X-Files, and there's been a couple of those where it's like, I feel like I'm like just by watching this participating in something. Paul says we ought to stand because we've been covered by the gospel. Second Col- Colossians chapter 2 is going to be on the screen. He says you were dead because of your sins. And because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he gave all our sins. Isn't that crazy? That your sinful, the, our sinful nature is what makes us feel shame. And the text says he cut it away. It's not even attached to us anymore. And not only did he cut it away, he forgave us. He cut, totally covered it. Then God made you alive with Christ, forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away. By nailing it to the cross. In this way, check this out. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. And even better, he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Satan likes to shame. Jesus is like, let me one-up you there. I'm going to put you to shame publicly by an open declaration of the gospel. And this, if you are in Christ, is what covers you. It is this forgiveness, this cutting away. We can argue about this later, by the way. You, if you are in Christ, if you've stepped across the line of faith, can't be possessed by a demon. You can't. We're a one-occupancy kind of situation. That doesn't mean that you can't be messed with. That doesn't mean that when we do the Ouija board things, that doesn't mean when we engage in consistent patterns of rebellious sin that we're not opening ourselves to something. But Jesus says if we live fully into the gospel that we have been forgiven, that our sinful nature has been cut away, that we've been made alive. You know, Satan really only has the rule over dead people. That's what Ephesians 2 says. It says we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and dead people obey the devil. That's just what they do, but we're not dead anymore. We're not zombies. We're living people running away from the zombies. We're trying to love the zombies back into real life. The text says he canceled those records, and in, in this way... He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. 
And here's the crazy thing. When Jesus does this, Jesus achieves victory. Isn't this crazy? In brokenness. Jesus achieves victory for us by breaking himself for us, which is what we celebrate at this table. By spilling his blood, by breaking his body, he achieved victory. And here's why this is a way forward for us, because we are so susceptible to the the enemy's schemes when we remain unbroken. When we remain broken and, and rigid, that's pride, that's arrogance, It's not trusting the Lord. Satan can do a lot with that. But when we are broken and humble and have, regeneration is not a community to where to be a part of you, you have to have it all figured out. But if we can come to some sort of agreement on there's somebody that's bigger than me and I would be interested in knowing about him or whatever that is. It's in that humility that Christ is given free reign. It's mind-blowing. And at this table, Christ declares to us that we need fear not because the victory is won. Here's part two of the sermon next week. We are victorious. We're at war, but we've already won the battle. It's like we're on some obscure part of like the France-German border in World War II, still shooting at each other, not knowing that everybody back in Paris is like, it's over, what up? And so we live in between. We live in this war while waiting for final victory, and yet we are called to have courage. And so at this table, we celebrate the body that was broken, the blood that was poured out for us. You can come and you can take a piece of bread and you can dip it in the cup. And then if you happen to be giving tonight and responding to God in that way, you can do right here at this basket. You are covered, you are protected, you are blessed. Let's pray. Father, I pray for that person in this room tonight that is being shamed. I pray for the person tonight that is being lied to. I pray for the person tonight who is being tempted. Jesus, I pray that the blood of your cross would even tonight cut away those things, would cut away the shame. That it would cut away the, the, the lie that it would cut away the temptation that just for a moment, maybe even now, they could see who you are, who you're inviting them to be, and just give them that tiny ounce of energy to stand still. That's the crazy thing, Jesus. You tell us to stand, because in the Old Testament, you tell us, be still, for the Lord will fight for you. And so, Jesus, I do pray that Christ would be all around each one of these dear ones that your spirit would be so fully weighted into them that they would know their freedom. Pour out your spirit on the simple gifts of bread and cup that they might become to us the body and blood of Christ, that we might become the victorious church that lives and has its being in you to invite others in. Help us to know our forgiveness and so to forgive others. Pray this in Christ's name, amen. Table is open.
Okay, sorry. I'm just that, I don't know, deep. Um, we're so glad that you were here tonight. I just want to read you one verse. And then, like, Rita made, like, the most amazing muffins I've ever put in my mouth. So, that's that. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. If I could geek out for a minute, I, I had to translate this verse once in a Greek class. And the Kyle-inspired, we hope, version is, For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but the spirit of power and love and self-control. He is with you at your side, behind you, before you, above you, below you. You're loved. We'll see you next week.